as far as the whole congregation goes. Um, this is just a busy month, guys, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute and how it relates to COVID and sort of where we are. Um, but our plan is to go forward with our congregational meeting a week from today, um, Sunday evening next week on the 15th, and that will be in the gym, and you'll hear some more updates about where we are from, from the elders, from our new staff members, and, and from various uh, leadership. Um, that is Sunday evening next week. Awana is set to start back on the 22nd. And then on the 29th, we have our uh, missions conference. So it's a busy month. There, there's a lot going on. And for the missions conference, there's flyers out. Um, I meant to bring one up. Oh, I do have one. Um, these flyers are out there on the couple of pieces of furniture out in the lobby. The focus of the missions conference is to reach beyond our congregation. And that's not just, we don't just mean overseas. We mean reaching beyond our congregation in our own uh, communities and how we can reach out to others. There's a Saturday component to this uh, missions conference. There's a Sunday component. Grab one of those flyers, make a note of it, and plan to be here as much as you can because it's going to be an exciting time um, for us to grow and be challenged together. But as I said, we do need to be aware of just where we are with this whole COVID stuff. And trust me, I don't want to be up here talking about COVID any more than you want to hear about COVID. Um, but we know that in our community and other areas, there, are, there is another rise in cases. And so I'm asking you to just continue to be in prayer. Continue to be in prayer for our local healthcare workers. Continue to be in prayer. That's why we're coming together tonight to pray for our schools because our schools have been in the forefront of all of these discussions relating to these viruses or this virus. Um, but I also want to just remind you that um, we are called to come together as the body of Christ. And it has been such a joy as Ruby prayed to, after going through a season of not meeting together, to be meeting together and to be meeting together uh, safely without significant spread of the disease amongst people in our church. In fact, at this point, we know of nobody that's caught the virus within any ministry of our church, and we praise God for that. And we're committed to continue to meet together and worship together. Um, but know that your elders are, are very concerned and, and want to be aware and wise of what we need to do in response to the increase in cases. And so we'll meet together tomorrow night. And the elders will continue to meet every two weeks, as we always do. And we're going to just continue to reevaluate where we are as a church, where we are in response to the growing number of cases. We, we're, it's very possible we'll be bringing back the 915 outside service. Um, and there are some people that will be excited about that. We'd love, we'd love to give more options for worship in person like that. But I want to ask you to pray for us. I also want to ask you to, um, to share with us. If you have any questions or, or any concerns, you know, call your elders. Um, you, our elders have a system set up where we try to make regular phone calls to the membership, but we would love for you to call us and, uh, and share with us your heart on, on where you are. Uh, you know, I made a post. Um, I, I'm not a social media guy. And this week I made a, like, probably the most significantly responded to social media posts I've, I've ever made before. And it was, it, it was related to the fact that um, 10 years ago, this past week, we had our two twin boys. And many of you know the story, and I'll not rehash it. But we lost our two twin boys, and that was, the 10th anniversary of that just came this week. And I, I, I shared that on Facebook and mentioned the fact that we're just living in a season of crisis after crisis after crisis. And it feels like there's so much fear and, and anxiety and so much, so much uh, tension just in the air that we breathe. 
And in the midst of it, I was just reminded of the way God has moved incredibly in my family in our darkest hour 10 years ago and how he was faithful, how he brought peace, how he brought restoration to our family and how we are so grateful for all the many blessings he has given us. And I shared that and I realized how much I struck a chord that I wasn't sure, I had no idea how it was gonna affect people and got lots of messages and it just shows the, the tension and anxiety that's sort of in the air right now. And so I'm gonna ask you, um, stay clinging to Christ and stay clinging to the body of Christ. I heard another pastor share of a study that he had read saying that over the last year and a half, churches have been in such a crisis and such a, a, a point of disagreement over how to handle the virus and how to handle the political challenges of our day. There's been so much division within American churches that he actually cited a study that said about a third of the people in their church were there and committed. This was actually a study of multiple churches. Across these multiple churches, about a third of the people were more committed than they had ever been over the last year and a half. About a third of the people were on the fence and not sure if they were part of the right church or, or what their future in church engagement would be like, online, in person, this church, that church, whatever. And a third of the people were already gone in other churches or not regularly engaging in churches at all. And it's stark and it, it's challenging to think, how, how are we, what are we doing as the body of Christ? What are we doing as believers in a risen Savior? I'm going to encourage you, let's, let's commit to each other to walk through these continually messy seasons where everybody's going to disagree on something and we're going to disagree on how we handle next stages of the virus and next issues that come up. But I got to tell you, I, I'm grateful I'm grateful to be here and after all of these months of, of great difficulty and great challenge. Um, y'all, we're still gathering together. We're still, we're still meeting together in, in various groups, and we'll, we'll have more plans to do that soon. Um, and I hope you're praying for the unity of the body of Christ. And on this, I'm not talking about Fellowship Bible Church. I'm talking about the global church. This has not just been a challenging season for Fellowship Bible Church, and that's not actually what all of this that I'm saying is about. It's about the church as a whole. The world needs a unified church as we bring the message of salvation, the message of the good news. Christ is building his kingdom in our days, and Christ often builds his kingdom most significantly when the days are the darkest. And so wherever you are in response to the, the events of our day, I just pray that you would be praying for this local body as we make wise decisions, but also for the whole body of Christ globally. For us to stand on the truth of God's word and the gospel, proclaim the message unapologetically, and walk in relationship together no matter the trials we face. In these days where confusion abounds, we need clear leadership from the scriptures. And so here's what Jesus would say. A new command I give you that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And Paul would say, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Since Paul just told us to be constant in prayer, 
uh, we're going to pray again. I'm going to lead us in just a prayer for our community, for all the, the different leaders and organizations having to make hard decisions again when we're weary of this whole thing. And we're going to pray for unity of the body of Christ. Father, we praise you and thank you because in the midst of changing times, in the midst of difficult challenges, um, you're the one thing that never changes. We wake up each morning, you're sitting on your throne, exercising your sovereign control over the entire universe. There is not an inch of creation over which you don't shout, it is mine. This is what my hands have created. And so, Father, you know the situation with the virus that we have faced as a society. You know the significance of it in our local community. And, Father, you know where every heart that is in this building or listening to my voice today, you know where every heart and mind is in the complexity of these issues. And, Father, we're tired. We're weary by the, uh, of the debate, of the disagreement, of the struggle that we faced but Father, may we continue to trust you. So that's what we do today. We lay it down. We lay it all before you and say, we trust you, Father. We trust you. And so, Father, we pray for, um, for wisdom, for all those who lead, for church leadership, for school leadership, for governmental leadership at the local level, at the national level. Father, we pray for wisdom for all, that they would be listening and hearing from you and actually doing what you would call them to do, what you would call us as leaders to do. Father, may we be unapologetic ambassadors as never before because you're our only hope. We have no hope apart from you, and if we ever thought we did, boy, have we been reminded that we don't. And so, Father, may we speak boldly. May we speak clearly the message that the world needs to hear. And Spirit, move in us. Give us the wisdom to pick the right opportunities to speak up with boldness and passion. And Father, when we don't know what to say, we trust that you, by your Spirit, will give us the words. May we always trust in your Scriptures and in the direction of your Spirit. May we always love each other well as those who have been united by the blood of Jesus. So, Father, as we go, as we move in our community, as we represent you, we ask for your power and your blessing, and we know you go with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 8. And this is going to be real fun. It's a long passage, actually four different stories wrapped into one sermon, um, but it's not, listen, I've preached way longer sermons than this one, okay? So sit tight. We've got a lot to cover, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be good because actually all we're going to see today is just the beauty of Jesus and what he can do. I have a picture I want to show you. This is actually uh, taken from a church member. And uh, the first, when I got this picture, she sent it to me a couple weeks ago with no explanation other than, do you know what this is? Anybody know what this is? I had to stare at it, and I said, uh, I'm like, what kind of a test is this? Like, when somebody sends you a message and says, what is this? It's like, I, I really don't want to fail this test. But it took me a minute. I said, I know I've seen that before. What is that picture? I had, I, I had no idea. And then she sent me the, the next one. And you won't be able to see this. But this says Bethel Artists. The name of that sculpture, that monument is called Bethel. 
and it has the artist's names, and it has a date, and I immediately recognized both of those names, and I immediately recognized uh, the date, and I, I realized what that was all about. Um, go back to the monument. This monument was built as a commemoration or as a memorial to a, a large part of downtown Jackson, Tennessee that was destroyed in a tornado uh, 20 years ago. And see, this church member was driving through, knowing that I'm from Jackson, Tennessee. I spent 18 years of my life there. And as she was driving through, she saw that, and she's like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. And then she got out, she started looking at the Bible verses, different places, and she's like, what is, what is this for? But there wasn't a real explanation in all the plaques. You have the artist, you have the date, you have Bible verses, but what is this all about? So she pulls over to a gas station, and she asked some guys at a gas station literally across the street, hey, what is that thing? That's got to mean something, right? Do you know what the guys at the gas station said? I don't know. We have, we have no idea. We just, it's just always been there. And I thought, are you kidding me? Y'all, I'm not old, but I know exactly what that is. That was built to commemorate this tornado in which that entire block, where that gas station stood, was completely flattened and leveled. But see, when, you, when you're a kid in middle school and high school, as I was back at the time, you remember you remember that storm. You remember that event. Now, those guys that are in their early 20s now, they don't know. They were real little back then. They have no idea about, and you know, also, if you grow up in Jackson, Tennessee, you kind of get, get a little confused at which tornado happened in what part of town and at what year. <laughs> I mean, because uh, you guys have heard me tell tornado stories before. This has nothing to do with the tornado that just went through our senior year of college. That, that totally different tornado, totally different part of town. It just was over the course of 10 years, three or four major tornadoes did major damage from the time I was in middle school to college. And so I, I remember the storm well, but you know, when you're not in the storm and you just hear about the storm, you don't have the same level of memory. But when you've been in the storm, when you've felt the wind, when you've watched the hail, when you've watched the trees fall, as I did, and I remember this storm, I, I didn't live real close to there, but we, our house was affected by the storm. We lost a tree during that storm and um, we had several cars with hail damage and our house had hail damage. I remember that storm. I remember the feeling of, of unease I remember the aftermath and the pain and the, the lives that were lost in that very storm, why they built that monument. But those young guys, they probably heard about it at some point. Surely somebody had told them. But when they drove by it, it was just a monument. They had lost all touch with, with what had happened 20 years before. But you know, if you're ever rescued out of a storm, you remember it. And in my family, tornadoes are, are not are not a normal thing. It, it, it always causes a little bit of stress or anxiety because of the way we've endured them. Well, today we're looking at the way God delivers and the way Jesus shows his power in the midst of different types of storms. The first story in the sermon for today out of Luke chapter 8 is about a literal storm, and we all know this story. In fact, I, I would venture to say that probably most of us listening here today know all four of these stories from the life of Christ. See, the, the good thing is that we know the Gospels well, and by the Gospels, I mean the books that are the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of those stories, we know the basics of what happens, and so then you kind of begs the question, well, why do we, 
Why do we need to talk about them? You've probably heard these stories preached before. But what I want to do is I want to tie them together to see how in various types of storms, God shows his power and Jesus specifically delivers his people by his power. And he demonstrates his power over all things and that is exactly the message we need today. So, Luke 8, 22 is where we'll pick up. Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger. They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now, this is something that, that you're going to receive this story differently based on how you view a, a storm. If you've ever endured a significant storm, like a tornado or a hurricane, you can probably place yourself into this story a little bit. Or if you've ever been on a boat in the midst of a storm, that's something that I've never done. But if you've ever been on the boat in the midst of a storm, you probably have an even greater connection to just the uneasiness of the whole thing. I remember being at the lake with a family from the church and seeing the way a storm on the lake could actually have an effect because there were a couple, there were motorboats that were struggling their way through. But then there was a sailboat that we just watched and we watched from the house and somebody said, boy, I hope their house is down there because they are going that direction and they don't have a choice. Because in the midst of the storm, you're going to go where the storm's going to take you, especially if you're a sailboat. Well, actually, the, the guy from, uh, from our church, a, a young man from our church, uh, became a hero that day to the neighbors because as they were coming in, they could not dock their boat because the waves were too strong. The wind was too strong. So he had to run and he had to grab their boat for him and he had to pull them into the dock. And when you are on the water, I mean, it's one thing to be on the ground, on the land in a storm. But you're on the water on the storm, you're going to go wherever the storm takes you. And when he says, when Luke says the boat's filling up with water and the fishermen are afraid, remember, these are career fishermen. This is not just a joyride on the boat. This is what they do. This is what they do every day of their lives, and they have been doing it every day of their lives. So when these guys are freaked out by a storm, it's a real storm. It's a big deal. In fact, Matthew actually tells this story too in his gospel. Matthew uses, the word that Matthew uses for, for storm is seismos which is the word for which we get seismic. And it shows that it literally means quaking and shaking. That it's like the boat is experiencing an earthquake on the water. That's the way Matthew is using the word. And the disciples didn't wake up Jesus to say, hey Jesus, it's raining. To say, hey Jesus, we're a little scared. They woke up Jesus to say, we are dying. We are going to die. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is not huge. If, you, if you've ever been there or if you see pictures of the Sea of Galilee, it's probably going to strike you with how small it is. Because the Sea of Galilee actually sits below sea level and there's, there's higher elevation on either side of it. And so it's about five miles wide, but you can see from one side to the other. It's only about 13 miles long at its longest stretch. It's not a huge sea. But in this situation, this storm was raging to such an extent that these guys were surprised. And oh, by the way, fishermen know 
Even ancient fishermen, even in the first century, they didn't have a weather map, but they know how to read the weather, how to read the sky, and know if it's safe to go out on the boat or when they need to come in early or whatever. And on a sea like the Sea of Galilee, this storm had to come in quickly because, as I said, it's just not a big body of water. So if there were any signs of a storm, they would have come in. This was a a very quick, very intense, very, very scary storm for guys that were pros. Got to get the fullness of the setting here. Master, master, we are perishing. Jesus, we're dying. He awoke. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, and they looked at one another. Who is this guy? Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. The disciples, their reaction was fear replaced by more fear. Fear of the wind and waves first, but then what happens next? They're afraid of Jesus, it says. When he looks at them and says, where is your faith? They were afraid of him. They marveled, saying to one another, who is this guy? We thought he was super powerful. We've already seen him do miracles. If you look back in, in Luke chapter 8, is 822 is where this story picks up. But go back a little ways and you'll see the way he had already done miracles. He had already raised somebody to life before this. He had already turned water into wine before this. This is not Jesus' first miracle on display. But there's something about the setting where their lives were in real imminent danger that it just shook them, literally, and spiritually to another degree where they recognized, oh, this is even more than we thought. This Jesus, he has power over nature to a degree that we, we didn't know that the wind had ears. We didn't know that the waves could hear and understand and respond. And yet he talks to nature and nature stops and obeys his command. Jesus is clearly exercising for them his power over nature, but also his care and concern for them. And you say that, well, no, no, wait. There's one way to read this story and be like, boy, Jesus is actually kind of apathetic for about 80% of the story, right? He says, hey, guys, let's go on a boat. It was his idea to go on the boat ride. The storm came, and he went to sleep, and everybody else was awake and was panicking, and Jesus was the only one snoozing. And then... They have to forcibly wake him up in order for him to respond. So you think, well, maybe Jesus is a little bit too apathetic in this. But he, he did what was right for the lesson that his disciples needed to learn. They needed to have their faith stretched in that way. They needed to be challenged. They needed to be face to face with the Son of God and hear the Son of God say, where is your faith? Why aren't you walking in faith? Why aren't you believing? Not long after that, verse 26, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. This is our second story. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
For a long time, this was not a new problem, for a long time he had worn no clothes, he had not lived in the house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Let me just stop there and contrast something. What was the last thing the disciples said? Who is this guy? What was the first thing the demon said? Jesus, son of the most high God. The demon goes on to say, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded unclean spirit to come out of him. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and sackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man was desperate to get the demons out of him. So he, had, he was violent in trying to do whatever he could to get the demons out. And then the demons were trying to get out and break the chains and shackles that the other people of the city had bound him in. Then they, <clears throat> sorry, Verse 30, Jesus asked him, Jesus asked the man, what is your name? And he said, Legion. A Roman legion was a group of um, hundreds of soldiers, thousands of soldiers. Something like 6,000 soldiers made up a legion as well as 120 uh, horse, men on horses and other technical personnel carrying the banners and things like that. 6,000 foot soldiers, 120 horsemen and technical associates. 6,120 people. How many demons are in this guy? I don't know if it's 6,120, but it's a whole lot. For the demons to say, we are legion. Luke simply says, for many demons had entered him. And they, the demons, plural, begged him not to command them to enter into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter into these, the pigs. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Then the herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The last place they expected him. The crazy guy with chains and sackles and no clothes that says crazy things, it's out in the desert half the time, that guy is now clothed and sitting, on the feet of the, uh, sitting at the feet of the guy that came from the other side of the lake. Because it's where, where they are. Gerasa is on the eastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had come from Capernaum on the western side. So here's this guy just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they were afraid. Just like the disciples were afraid. Were afraid of the storm at first. And then were afraid of Jesus when he confronted them for their faith. Now these people on the other side of the lake, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, all of the people, without exception, according to Luke, maybe there was some, some guy that wasn't a part of this crowd, but it sure sounds like everybody in the area came together and collectively asked him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So what did Jesus do? He got into the boat and returned the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus went away or sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done 
for him. So what do we see here? We see a significant addendum to what Jesus had just done. What did Jesus do in that first story we told? He exercised his power over physical nature in an extreme way. The wind has ears. The the waters have ears. And they listen to the Son of God who created them. So power over nature clearly on display. This is power over demons or power over the supernatural. The natural world in the first story, 22 and following, and now the supernatural world in 26 and following, both listen to Jesus. Both respond to Jesus' commands. The the demons, this great power that had, had ruined this man's life for many years and had had the entire society in the area living in great anxiety and fear over what this crazy guy was gonna do. But then Jesus came in and he said, you're going to get out. And they said, well, just send us into the pigs. And he said, okay, I'll send you in the pigs. And the pigs then run into the water. And the people, they ask him to leave. Here Jesus is demonstrating his power over the supernatural. C.S. Lewis said this that I think is interesting. He said there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, meaning the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and magician with the same delight. Here's what Lewis is saying here. There's two ways that we can lose sight of the truth when it becomes, when it regards supernatural things or spiritual forces of darkness. He says it's wrong to pretend that the spiritual forces of darkness don't exist. That is a grievous evil. But it's also wrong to believe that they exist and become so fascinated and so interested in them that you become obsessed in the darkness and the the evil side of the spiritual realm. We as Christians have to live in full awareness of the reality of spiritual war going on around us every single day. But as we live in that reality, we have to live in bold confidence that the victory has been achieved over that spiritual reality. That, that in Christ, our greatest enemy, the devil, Satan himself, has been defeated at the cross. And so therefore, Jesus has achieved a victory. Think about this. When Jesus is, is calling these demons out, they didn't even know what came next. They didn't even know at the incredible victory that Jesus was going to achieve at the cross after this point. How much greater has Jesus' demonstrated power and control over the spiritual realm now that he has officially defeated Satan at the cross? That that these dark forces, they are real, and we should be aware, and we should be wise in the spiritual realm to know that it exists, and to know that there are demons, literal demons, as there are literal angels. There's a literal cosmic war going on around us, but we know who wins. And so we're cautious, we're aware of the demonic, we're aware of the effects of the demonic, we're aware... Of, of the challenges that we face, but we're also bold, confident, hopeful, knowing that Jesus has defeated 
every enemy, including the demonic. And so, yeah, the common theme about Jesus in this whole passage, Jesus has power over everything, and everybody's afraid of him. We're still, we're, we're finding more and more people that are just afraid of Jesus in this. His disciples are afraid of him. The demons are afraid of him. The garrisons are afraid of him and say, oh, get out of here. At least the disciples are still following him. But they're a little bit thrown off by the power that they're seeing in him. See, both of these are storms. We have the literal physical storm over the Sea of Galilee. But then we have the storm that's going on inside the life of this one guy. And in both of those, Jesus meets them at their darkest hour, at the fiercest part of the storm. And those disciples that are on the boat, as they are reaching out to Jesus saying, we are dying here, help us. Jesus awakes and peace be still. And to this man who had probably given up all hope at this point, given up all hope of, of restoration, of healing, of deliverance, Jesus shows up and says, get out of him. Go to those pigs. You know, we talked tonight, we're going to pray for, for schools. We're going to pray for peace and comfort for teachers, for students, etc. But you know, one of the conversations that we keep having over the last year and a half, Jess and I have had it with each other several times, reminding ourselves, and we continue to have with other parents, is that, you know, you don't want your kids to suffer, and yet, you kind of do. And here's why. It's going to make you uncomfortable to think that thought. Just think back to your own life. Think back to the challenges that you faced. And think back, where did I grow in my faith? Where did I grow in my relationship with Christ the most? Was it in the fair weather or was it in the storms? Where did I learn to really trust God, that he had sovereign control over all of the events of my life and over all of creation? You probably learned it in the storm that you faced. And so, yeah, I'm all about praying against the storms for my kids. But I know, too, that they're going to face some storms that I can't protect them from. And my prayer in the midst of those storms is that God will grow them, that they will cling to the Father, that they will not run from the Father. And, and so, parents, let's, let's be real. Grandparents, let's, let's be mindful of this. Protect your children. Yes, protect your children as far as you can, but also go out and let them make their own mistakes. Go out and let them suffer some, knowing that as you do so, you are entrusting them, them into the sovereign hand of God. He who holds all things is holding on to them in the midst of whatever challenges you face. So if you're that, that mom and dad that's about to send somebody off to college here in a couple weeks, maybe send somebody off for the first time. If you're, you're a new parent, if you're about to send a kid to school for the first time, remember that he who holds all things is holding on to your child. And whatever adversities they face, God will be faithful. God has a plan. Not, not for harm, but for, for our good. And God, in the midst of the trials and tribulations, Jesus says to us, take heart, I've overcome the world. So, your kids are going to suffer some of our kids have already suffered a lot over the last year and a half. Some of us have suffered a lot in the challenges of our day. And so, yeah, we want to pray for God to move and bring peace and hope. But we also want to pray for God to move our hearts closer to him, 
more desperate for him, more dependent on him in the midst of the challenges we face. Okay, so God has power over the natural. God has power over the demonic or the supernatural. God also has power over death and disease. And here are two stories in one. Verse 40. Jesus returned. He had just gotten off the boat from Garrison. So he, he got on the boat on the western side of the, the sea, went over to the eastern side. There was a storm in the, in, in the in-between. And when he got over to the eastern side, sent some demons into some pigs, and then the, everybody said, hey, get out of here. We're afraid of you. Go back to the other side of the lake. So he did. Jesus and his disciples got back on the boat, came to the other side of the lake, and the crowd in Capernaum, they still loved him. And they were waiting for him. They welcomed him. Verse 41, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a teacher in the synagogue. Uh, He fell at Jesus' feet, and he implored him to come to his house. He had one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, now, that's, that's it right there. That, that's part one of the story of Jairus' daughter. And then there's this divine interruption. There's, there's this in, incredible scene. It's a story that most of you know that is literally just an interruption from Jesus going one place to another. Jesus has time for interruptions, especially ones that those he, those he ordains. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians... She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And all denied it. Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Peter says, everybody touched you, Jesus. What do you mean, who touched you? But Jesus said, no, no, no. Someone touched me, for I perceive power has gone out from me. He said, no, no, no. People were bumping me, sure, but somebody touched me in faith for power to move. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people that she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Father, or he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. This woman was unclean according to the old covenant law. And she had not worshipped, you know, Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, okay? This is probably Capernaum. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, and um, uh, this woman could not participate in any level of worship with the condition that she was in. She couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, because she would have had to have, be healed of this disease and then have purification rites and then be able to go and worship at the temple. So this woman hasn't attended worship in 12 years. This woman, if anyone touched her, they would then have to go through purification rites according to the old covenant laws as well. So that means that if she was touched, she was very rarely touched. Now, one of the things we've learned in the last year and a half is just how much we all value and appreciate physical contact and being with other people. This woman had been isolated for 12 years years. For 12 years, living in isolation, in pain, in embarrassment. Think of the, of, of the lowliness of her heart. And then all she does, at, the, at her, last, her last possible solution is to touch Jesus. She's tried every doctor. She's tried all sorts of things over 12 years. What would you do over the course of 12 years? 
She reaches out and she touches Jesus and Jesus knows it. Jesus heals her. But look at Jesus' explanation. It's very odd. Like, it's really odd. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That, that's odd. He doesn't take the credit. He doesn't say, my power has made you well. He says, your faith has made you well. So how, how do we understand that? This is an issue that we have to be careful of and we have to really kind of take a minute to unpack. Uh, her believing faith is the vehicle by which Jesus' power is on display here, okay? So it's not her faith without his power isn't going to heal her. But his power moves through the vehicle of her believing faith. Jesus doesn't heal people that don't believe him. Jesus doesn't heal people that don't come to him, that don't trust him for their physical healing or for their eternal salvation. And so we know that this is still true today, that Jesus moves in power, that Jesus pours out his power, but he pours out his power through the vehicle of believing faith. And so we, we act in faith. We exercise our faith. We pray in faith. We believe that Jesus works miracles. The greatest miracle is the miracle of the new birth, when, when, when the lost becomes found, when the dead are made alive in Christ, and we pray and we pray and we pray. But physical healing, we still pray for that. And we pray for God's healing power to, to unfold, to, to, to go out uh, to people that are sick, that are hurt. But in the midst of that, we pray in faith. But we also know, we also know that we have to be very careful about this faith issue in prayer because we can't use it as an accusation to throw at somebody else or an accusation to throw at our own heart to say, oh, well, maybe I wasn't healed because maybe I just wasn't praying enough. Maybe I wasn't exercising enough faith. Maybe they weren't exercising enough faith. Maybe, maybe it's a, a me problem. We have to be really careful of that. There's an ideology out there that is, can be very destructive and we have to take great care to say, yes, God heals in power. Yes, God loves. God wants to restore and God wants to move. But when you're begging and pleading for healing, don't, don't blame yourself and your own lack of faith. No, no, no. That's where we walk in the Christian community. We walk together. We encourage one another. We pray for healing together. But, but know that the outpouring of God's power flows through the vehicle of our faith. And so if you're not getting the answer you want, there's all sorts of, of explanations and reasons, and we don't know the ways of God but it is not as simple as just, well, you don't have enough faith. Don't believe that. Now, there are times when we can all grow and all be challenged in our faith. We can all pray with greater faith than we are praying. None of us gets this right all the time and prays in perfect faith. But we also have to recognize that Jesus loves deeply. He continually moves on behalf of the hurting, but his purposes go so far beyond our way of understanding in the way he heals, moves, and rescues. I cannot get, in this issue, I cannot get the life of the lame man in Acts chapter 3 out of my head. I always think about this guy. In Acts chapter 3, there's a man. He's sitting by the gate called Beautiful. Beautiful in Jerusalem. And on the way to the temple, a few of Jesus' disciples walk by him. And he doesn't ask for healing. He asks for silver and gold. And they say, well, silver and gold, I have none. But get up and walk. And then he walks. 
And he leaps and he praises. And everybody around is like, this guy's been here for years. Luke, in the way he tells the story in Acts chapter 3, says this guy had been here for years. And he, was, he always had people that would come and bring him and sit him right there. And he was waiting for healing. And do you realize that that episode with Peter and John coming along and healing this guy is just weeks after Jesus' ascension? Do you, do you recognize that that man was sitting there waiting for healing while Jesus was walking the earth and walking into the temple? Do you realize that Jesus walked by that guy? If we believe what Luke wrote in the book of Acts, we have to believe that he did. And that guy didn't receive his healing directly from Jesus. He received his healing from Peter and John through the power of Jesus so that Jesus' power could be on display through somebody else. So we don't always know the reasons. We don't know all of the explanations. But we know Jesus has incredible power to heal. This, this story's not over, so we're going to paint a little bit of a fuller picture here in a second. Let's keep going. Jesus' power does the healing. Our faith is the vehicle that delivers it. The sovereignty of God and not our faith is what determines the outcome there. While Jesus was speaking, verse 49, someone from the ruler's house. So Jairus is the guy with the daughter, right? 12-year-old daughter. Jairus is there with Jesus. Jesus is still healing this other woman. And somebody from Jairus' house comes and says, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble him anymore. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear only believe, and she will be well. It's funny that literally everybody Jesus had come into contact with over the last 24 hours was afraid of him. And he's saying, no, 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 do not fear. I still have a plan here. When he came into the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. So a great crowd of people that were praying for this little girl to survive, and then they stopped praying and started weeping, lamenting the fact that she had died. Six people walk into the room. Peter, James, John, Jesus, the father, the mother, and the little girl, of course, is there. All were weeping and mourning for her. And Jesus said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. Think of all the reactions to Jesus we've seen in just this short period of time. His disciples are afraid, the demons are afraid, the garrisons are afraid, the crowd in Capernaum loves him, these people are laughing at him. Who's laughing at him? It looks like to me, I'm just saying, it looks like they're in the room at this point. It looks like there's only seven people in the room and one of them is dead. And so who's laughing? Is it Peter, James, and John? Is it the girl's parents? I, I picture like Peter having this like awkward kind of laugh like, <laughs> he doesn't know what to do. Because Jesus is like, it's okay, she's just asleep. And everybody else is like, Jesus, don't. Jesus, she's really dead. Don't just say she's asleep. She's really dead, Jesus. By the way, I know we're, we live in 2021 and we think we're super smart, but when we look at stories like this, don't assume ancient people were dumb. Lots of critics of the Bible do stuff like this. They think, well, you know, she was probably in a coma. She was probably unconscious, stuff like that. Ancient people. In first century Jerusalem, first century Capernaum, knew when somebody was dead or alive. That's just, there, there's my soapbox for today. If they say she was dead, I believe she was really dead. Luke was also a doctor. He probably knows too. So somebody laughed. But then, taking her by the hand, Jesus called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up at once, and he told her to get something to eat. 
Her parents were amazed, but he charged the parents not to tell anyone what had happened. Her spirit returned. This is Luke's way of saying that she really was dead and she has been made alive by the power of God. Jesus is continuing to expand his power. You know, by the end of this chapter, the wind and the waves are actually not that impressive, right? Because he controlled the physical nature, that was one thing. But then he controlled the supernatural and the demonic, and he, and he called out the demons, and he called them into pigs, and they rushed into the water. And then he healed this disease that had been going on for 12 years. And then he literally raised a little girl that was dead to life. Amazing power on display here. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see Jesus heal her in this way. And think of the way God is telling a story here. Look back with me real quick. I just want to make a note that I think is not accidental. In verses 42 and 43, you have the repeat of the years 12. This woman, think about this. Think about what was happening 12 years before this. Right when this woman was first starting to struggle with this incredible ailment, there's a little girl being born. And think about who knew at the time how their stories would converge. Who knew that that little girl that was celebrating with Jairus and his wife, that all of their hope, all of their joy, all of their excitement about this birth of this new child, who knew that this child was one day going to intersect with the story of this woman? We don't know how old she is, but she's developing this, this bleeding issue at the same time that this little baby is being born. And it's such a story of God's sovereignty and the way we don't know and we don't expect things to happen the way they're going to happen. But God knew even 12 years before how he was going to weave the story of that little girl and that woman together in one powerful day in the life of Jesus. And they were both healed. And we believe that Jesus has the power to heal. We also believe that Jesus has the healing power into eternity, that one day all God's children will be fully, completely, ultimately healed in the presence of Jesus. Those who receive Jesus by faith will all one day be without disease, without sickness, without any sort of injury of any time in the presence of God, and we long for that day. So some experience it partially in this life. Some experience some level of miraculous healing in this life, and some receive their healing as they're welcomed into the arms of God. But all God's children experience the miracle of his power over death and his power over disease. But let's look back and try to draw this together. Jesus is showing power in four areas here. Nature, demons, disease, death. But look at the people. What I want you to walk away with today is, how am I going to follow Jesus in light of all this? Just look at the people in this story. The disciples are confused all the way through, including Peter, James, and John in the room of that little girl. They're still convinced he's, she's dead. They had just seen the winds and waves conquered. They had just seen the demons conquered. They had just seen this 12-year disease conquered. And then they were still confused when they were in the home of the little girl. The disciples were confused, but the demons knew. The demons knew all along. When Jesus walked up, Jesus didn't have to confront the, deacon, the demons. The demons confronted Jesus. We know who you are. The Gerasenes were afraid of him. 
Jairus and the sick woman, they exercised faith, desperate faith. So where are you today? Are you confused like the disciples? It's okay. The world is confusing. Are you fearful like the Gerasenes? Say, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know if I want that Jesus. If Jesus isn't going to give me exactly what I want when I want it, if that's not how prayer works, I'm not sure that's what I want to sign up for. Or are you like Jairus and the sick woman who in their faithful desperation, you know you can be desperate and faithful at the same time, right? That's what they were. In their desperation, don't pick on them because they didn't have any other options left. They were still faithful. Don't pick on her because she went to every doctor she could. Don't pick on Jairus because she she was on her deathbed before Jairus came to Jesus. They were desperate. They had tried other means, but they were faithful at the time when they had the opportunity with Jesus. So it's okay to come to Jesus desperate. It's okay to exercise a little bit of faith out of your desperation. So the question for you is the question that the disciples asked. Who is this guy? Is he who he says he is? No, no, really. Is Jesus just this guy that lived 2,000 years ago that you hear about a lot and this is just what you've always done? You've always come to church and you get built up a little bit and you get encouraged and you think, well, yeah, Jesus is, is great. I believe in him. But do you live every minute of every day in full light of who Jesus is? I don't think any of us do. And so you know what? We can all go deeper here. We can all go a little bit deeper into faith, into how we follow and walk with Jesus. At the end of last week's service, I gave you the opportunity to come forward and pray. And and people told me afterwards just how much they were affected by this idea of having a divided heart. And you know, the, the more I thought and the more I talked to people, boy, we should have all been up here, right? Can you really say that your heart's never divided? Man, mine sure is. But in the midst of this divided heart, we have this opportunity of a Jesus who is so kind, so loving, so ready to move, and he just wants us to reach out and touch him. And he's going to respond in healing power. So I'm going to ask, we're going to, we're going to sing again. We're going to stand up, we're going to sing again. The altar's going to be open again. And your one application Who is this Jesus and where are you going to follow him this week? Are you going to walk in fear like the Gerasenes? Are you going to walk in desperate faith like Jairus and the sick woman? Or are you going to stay in a state of confusion like those that were closest to Jesus were? I pray that we would all go deeper with Jesus. And as we sing, I'm going to remind you too, every single one of us needs his power. I don't know where you need it today. I have an idea where some of you need it. But where everyone is today, in your heart and in your mind, where you want to see God move in power, I don't know the answers. But I know you can bring it to Him. And whether you need power over something natural, something supernatural, over disease, over death, whatever you need power over, He's here and He's waiting. Let's stand and sing. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hand. From 
the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God and all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so I love your voice. Well, you have led me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. Oh, I have lived in the goodness of God. down. We're not, we're not done yet. I've got a couple more things I want to do. I'm going to ask uh, two families to join me up here, Cord and Tabitha and Will and Leah. Um, one of the exciting things that we get to do in the life of the church is welcome new people in. So yeah, y'all come on up here. 
Um, I'm going to start over here. This is Cord and Tabitha King. They've just completed our new members class. And so we are welcoming them this morning into our family here at Fellowship. Um, they've been in, attending here for a little while and uh, have shared their testimonies. And we're just so grateful for them. They were um, Jericho's VBS leader. So they get like extra bonus points as members for that. Um, and it's actually funny. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them. There's, there's like just as I see y'all walk up here, like, I'm not sure everybody knows how much y'all two have in common. Um, so this is Will and Leah Ross. And um, Will's, you know, been here a few years. Leah's been here for a long time, off and on. Um, Leah grew up in this church, um, but uh, we're so grateful for Will and Leah to be a co- part of this uh, fellowship and this family as well. And uh, we're just grateful because you guys have been here. You guys have been great friends of ours, and uh, we're thankful to see you coming in and uh, new baby on the way, which is exciting also. So we want you to be praying for both of these families. Um, I say they have a lot in common because I usually say a little bit about them. So this is Will. He's a middle school math teacher. This is Cord. He's a middle school math teacher. Um, But uh, Cord works at Valley Point Elementary in town. And actually, Will, you're not, he's a math interventionist, whatever that means which is uh, even more impressive now. Um, But Will works for Murray County Schools. Uh, Leah's a nurse at Hamilton Medical Center. Um, Tabitha is a physical therapist for Bradley Wellness Center. So um, be in prayer for both of these couples. Come up after the service today. Introduce yourselves. If you haven't met them, um, they're just amazing couples. We're grateful to have you guys as a part of our family. Uh, Would you stand with me? And I'm going to proclaim the benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. And don't forget, tonight here at six o'clock, come back for prayer and um, get your car washed before you leave the parking lot today. Thanks, y'all.